0: section two of that affair at elizabeth this librivox recording is in the public domain that affair at elizabeth by Burton egbert stevenson chapter three the lover's story i paused as soon as we reached the pavement for a look about me we were evidently in the fashionable quarter of the town the street was wide well kept and shaded by stately elms the houses which stretched away on either hand had that spaciousness that air of dignity and quiet which bespeaks wealth and leisure here was no gaudy architecture no flamboyant flourish of the newly rich rather the evidence of families long settled in their present surroundings and long accustomed to the luxuries of a cultured and generous existence but it was to the house directly before us that i gave the closest scrutiny it was a large one two-storied with a wide veranda running across the entire front it stood well back from the street and was sheltered on each side by magnificent trees The grounds seemed to be very extensive, and were beautifully kept. Along the pavement a curious crowd was loitering, kept in motion by a policeman, but staring at the house as though they expected to read the solution of the mystery in its inexpressive front. Mr. Royce nodded to the officer, and we passed through the gate. As we went up the walk I noticed that the blinds were closely drawn, as though it were a house of mourning, and indeed dead hopes enough lay there. A maid admitted us, and when my companion inquired for Mr. Curtis, led the way silently along the hall. In the dim light I could see the decorations of palms and wreaths of smilax, relieved here and there by a mass of gorgeous bloom, and through a door to the right I caught a glimpse of many tables, set ready for the luncheon which was never to be eaten. There was something ghostly about the deserted rooms, something chilling in the thought of this arrested gaiety, these hopes for happiness so rudely shattered. It recalled that vision which had so astonished poor Pip, the vision of Miss Havisham, decked in her yellow wedding-finery, sitting at her gilded dressing-table in the darkened room, with the bride-cake cobwebbed and mouldy, and the chairs set ready for the guests who were never to arrive. Only here, I reflected, the clock should be stopped at noon, not at twenty minutes to nine. We turned into a room which I saw to be the library, and a man sprang up as we entered. "'Royce!' he cried and there was in his tone such an agony of entreaty that I knew instantly who he was. "'No, no news, Burr,' said our junior. "'But here's Mr. Lester, and if any one can suggest a solution of this mystery, I'm sure he can. Lester, this is Burr Curtis.' As I shook hands with him, I told myself that Mr. Royce's description had been well within the truth. I could join with him in saying that I had never seen a handsomer man or a more attractive one, though in his eyes, as I met them, misery and anxiety were only too apparent. "'It was very kind of you to come, Mr. Lester,' he said. "'Not at all,' I protested. "'I only hope I can be of some service. "'Royce has told you—' "'Only the bare facts,' I said. "'I'd like to have all the details of the story, if you'll be so kind as to give me them.' "'Certainly,' he assented instantly, as we sat down. "'That's what I wish to do. "'I know how important details are.' He paused for a moment, to be sure of his self-control, and I had the chance to look at him more closely his face was not only comely it was strong magnetic the black hair and eyes bespoke of vigorous temperament the full beard closely cropped served rather to accentuate the fine lines of mouth and chin there was no superfluous flesh about the face no puffiness it was thin with the healthy thinness which tells of a busy life and browned by exposure to wind and sun it was altogether a manly face not the merely handsome one which i had rather expected my eyes were drawn especially to his hand as he passed it hastily over his forehead a hand firm white with slightly tapering fingers an artist's hand which one would scarcely connect with an engineer of construction there's really very little i can tell you he said at last when i saw marcia this morning his voice choked and he paused unable for the moment to go on let us begin farther back than that mr curtis i suggested knowing that the beginning was the hardest part mr royce tells me you were classmates when did you graduate from college seven years ago and you came at once to new york yes to take the examination for the pennsylvania road you were given a place on the road at once yes not a very important place but one with a chance for promotion which was all i asked i was stationed at pittsburgh for three years and then called east to work on the division between new york and philadelphia a year ago i was made assistant at the headquarters office rather a remarkable career, I commented, smiling. Not at all, he protested quickly. I liked the work, and I was well equipped. I saw that I should have to revise my opinion of him. Certainly he was not conceited. When did you meet Miss Lawrence? I asked. Last December, the 10th to be quite accurate, just six months ago today. Again his voice trailed away into a sort of hoarse whisper, though he tried desperately to control it. Won't you tell me about it? Is it— necessary, he questioned miserably. I—I I don't want to talk. I know you don't, and I don't want to make you, but if I'm to help I must know the whole story. Pardon me, Mr. Lester, he said, pulling himself together by a mighty effort. Of course you must. Only give me time. I'm—I'm— I'm... All the time in the world, I assured him, and settled back in my chair to listen. We had a bad grade crossing just east of Elizabeth he began, after a moment, in a steadier tone. It was an ugly place, with the driveway coming down a stiff hill and meeting our tracks at an angle which prevented a clear view of them. We kept a flagman there, of course, but nevertheless accidents happened right along. A skittish horse, once started down the hill and frightened perhaps by the whistle and rumble of the approaching train, would be pretty hard to stop. I nodded. I had seen just such murderous crossings so the company determined to build a viaduct there, and last December sent me out to look over the ground. I reached there about nine o'clock in the morning, and by noon had all my data and was ready to come back to the city. Can you flag this train for me, John? I asked the flagman, as I heard a whistle down the line. No, sir, he answered. Can't do it, sir. That's the limited, but there'll be a local along ten minutes after it. All right, I said, and went up the bank a bit to sit down and wait for it. The Limited whistled again, just around the curve, and then I heard the flagman give a yell and start up the hill, waving his flag like mad. I jumped up and saw that a buggy containing two women had just started down, and that the horse was beyond control. It didn't take me above a minute to run over, get the horse by the bridle, and stop him. I held the track record for everything up to the half-mile while I was at Chef, he added, with a little apologetic smile. I nodded again, only I thought I should like to hear the flagman tell the story the horse had knocked me about a bit he went on and kicked me on the legs once or twice so when i let go of the bridle i was a little wobbly made a fool of myself i suppose anyway i was bundled into the buggy and taken back to elizabeth where the women lived yes i encouraged him for he seemed to have come to a full stop and then well they took me home with them and fixed me up as though i were a plaster baby the elder woman introduced herself as mrs lawrence and the younger as her daughter marcia they made me stay for tea he stopped again "'I don't know how to tell the rest, Mr. Lester,' he blurted out. "'Only Marcia Lawrence was the divinest woman I ever met. "'Rice used to laugh at me for having an ideal. "'Yes, he told me,' I said. "'Well, I knew instantly that I'd found her, "'and she was very good to me, better than I knew how to deserve. Three months ago she promised to be my wife. "'We were to have been married at noon to-day.' "'He sat with bowed head and working face, unable to go on. "'We were happy.' she was happy i know it he cried fiercely after a moment there wasn't a cloud not a single cloud it was too perfect i suppose too perfect for this world i've heard that perfect things don't last but i don't understand i can't understand mr royce told me she'd disappeared i said gently disappeared utterly he was on his feet now and striding madly up and down the room his self-control gone from him there wasn't a cloud i tell you not the slightest breath of suspicion or distrust or unhappiness last night some of her friends here gave a little reception for her and she was the gayest of the gay this morning about ten o'clock i called to see her she seemed very happy kissed me good until we should meet at the church a convulsive shudder shook him i saw how near he was to breaking down let me tell the rest burr said a low voice from the door and i turned to see a woman standing there a woman dressed in black with a face of unusual sweetness but shadowed by a great sorrow End of chapter three chapter four a strange message i guessed in a breath who she was and my heart went out to her in instant pity yet a second glance told me that it was not the shadow of this recent sorrow which lay across her face time alone could grave those lines of calm endurance could give to the eyes that look of quiet resignation to the mouth that curve of patient suffering. And only a deep spiritual faith could preserve and heighten the sweetness and gentleness of a countenance so marked. "'This is Mr. Lester,' Mrs. Lawrence said our junior quickly, and placed a chair for her. "'We've asked Mr. Lester to help us,' he added. She closed the door behind her, and came forward as we rose, acknowledging the introduction with the faintest of bows. "'Thank you,' she said. "'Lucy told me you had returned, Mr. Royce,' she went on, a little tremulously, and I was anxious to know if you had any news. Not yet. Mr. Curtis was just telling Mr. Lester. Yes, she interrupted. I saw how he was suffering, and I wished to spare him if I could. My dear Mrs. Lawrence broke in Curtis. You must think only of sparing yourself. Still, I suggested, it's possible that Mrs. Lawrence can help us a great deal, if she will. She was holding herself admirably in hand, and I thought her in much less danger of breaking down than Curtis himself. Perhaps the old sorrow had taught her how to bear the new one. "'I shall be glad to help you all I can,' she said, and smiled a faint encouragement. It seemed brutal to question her at such a time, but I saw it must be done, and I nerved myself to do it. "'Mrs. Lawrence,' I began, "'has any possible explanation of your daughter's flight occurred to you?' "'No,' she answered quickly, and with an emphasis that rather startled me. "'It seems to me utterly unexplainable. Even yet I can scarcely believe it.' she left no message for you. Not a word. She simply disappeared. And you had no warning. Warning? she repeated, facing around upon me. No! Nor suspected that there was anything amiss. Not for an instant. Since there was something amiss, why did your daughter not confide in you? I have asked myself the same question. I am utterly unable to answer it. She was in the habit of coming to you with her troubles. Always. There was the most perfect confidence between us. And yet she concealed this. She did not conceal it, she protested. She could not have concealed it from my eyes, even had she wished to. There was nothing to conceal. There was absolutely nothing wrong the last time I saw her. And that was... only a few minutes before she disappeared. Will you tell me just what happened, I suggested, as gently as I could. Every detail you can remember." She sat for a moment with compressed lips, steadying herself. "'There's very little to tell,' she began. "'She was quite her usual self this morning, so far as I could see, and very happy. Two or three of her girlfriends came in to see her for a moment, to talk over the final arrangements, and she was giving some directions about the decorations when Mr. Curtis called. After he had gone she made a last trip through the house to see that all was right, and then started upstairs to dress. Half an hour later she came to my room in her wedding gown to ask how she looked.' and I had never seen her looking more beautiful. Only perfect happiness can give such beauty to a woman. I remember thinking what a joy it was to me that she had found a man whom she could love as she loved." A half-stifled, choking sob from Curtis interrupted her. She turned and stretched out her hand to him with a gesture of infinite affection. "'I finished dressing,' she continued, and then went to Marcia's room, but she wasn't there. Her maid said she'd been called downstairs for a moment. I came down and found that the decorator had wanted her opinion of the final touches. She had left him to go upstairs again, as he supposed. It was then nearly half-past eleven, and the bridesmaids began to arrive. I suppose Marcia was in the grounds somewhere, and sent two of the servants to look for her, and to tell her it was time to start for the church. They came back, saying she was not to be found. Then I began to be alarmed, thinking that she had perhaps been taken suddenly ill, and we searched the house and grounds systematically, but found no trace of her. At last it seemed just possible that she had gone on to the church, and the bridesmaids hurried into the carriages and drove away, but she wasn't there, only Burr waiting for her. She stopped with a sudden tremulousness. "'Thank you,' I said. "'There's one question I must ask, Mrs. Lawrence, before I can go to work intelligently. You will pardon it. Had your daughter ever had any attachment previous to this one?' I saw Curtis glance at her quickly. That solution of the problem had occurred to him too, then." "'Not the shadow of one,' answered Mrs. Lawrence instantly, and perhaps it was only my fancy that the accent of sincerity was a trifle forced. I have been Marcia's companion and confidant all her life, and I am sure that no man ever distinctly interested her until she met Mr. Curtis. "'But she no doubt interested many men,' I suggested. "'Yes, but never with intention. That only makes the case more desperate sometimes.' I don't believe there were any desperate cases. You will remember, she added, that we lived much abroad, and so had few intimate acquaintances. Besides, Marcia was—well, extremely patriotic. She often said that she would marry only an American, and an American who lived at home and was proud of his country. One doesn't meet many of that kind in Europe. No, I agreed. Whatever my doubts might be, it was clearly impossible at present to proceed any further along that line of inquiry. And what other line lay open? It seemed to me that I had come to an impasse, a closed way, which barred further progress. I sat silent a moment, pondering the problem. Perhaps Mrs. Lawrence held the key to it, and I turned to look at her. She was seemingly sunk in reverie, and her lips moved from time to time, as though she were repeating to herself some fragmentary words. She seemed more self-possessed in the presence of this catastrophe than one would have expected. Perhaps she knew where her daughter was. Perhaps Miss Lawrence had not really fled there was nothing to show that she had left the house. It seemed impossible that a woman clad as she had been could have fled in broad day without attracting someone's notice. But whether she had fled or not, I reflected, the mystery remained the same. Certainly she had not appeared at the altar to keep her promise to Burr Curtis. Mrs. Lawrence, I asked, what reason have you to believe that your daughter left the house? She started from her reverie and sat staring at me as though scarce understanding. Why, she said at last. What else could she have done? She has disappeared. You're sure she isn't concealed somewhere about the place? Concealed? And she paled a little under my eyes. Oh, no, that's impossible. We've searched everywhere. And you think she went of her own free will? She could scarcely have been abducted, she retorted. Marcia is a strong girl, and a single scream would have alarmed the house. That's true, I agreed. Your room is near hers just across the hall. The wish flashed into my brain to look through the house. Perhaps I should be able to arrange it. There's no pit or hole or trap or anything of that sort into which she could have fallen. Oh, no, nothing of the sort. Nor closet nor chest into which she could have accidentally locked herself, I went on, remembering the fate of the bride in the old song. No, besides, we've looked in them all. We've searched everywhere, every corner. She's not in the house, I'm quite sure of that and yet you say she loved Mr. Curtis. (laughs) Loved him devotedly. Then what possible reason could she have for deserting him? Why should she— A knock at the door interrupted me. Mrs. Lawrence, who was sitting nearest it, rose quickly and opened it. I caught a glimpse in the semi-darkness of the hall, of a woman in a maid's cap and apron. She gave her mistress a letter, whispering, as she did so, a swift sentence in her ear. I heard Mrs. Lawrence's low exclamation of surprise as she held the letter up to the light and read the superscription. Then she turned swiftly toward us, her face pale with emotion. "'It's a note!' she cried. "'A note from Marcia! It will explain!' and she handed the envelope to Curtis. "'A note?' he stammered. "'Addressed to me?' "'In Marcia's writing. Read it. It will explain,' she repeated. He took it with trembling hand went to the window and tore it open. I saw his lips quivering as he read it. I saw the white intensity with which Mrs. Lawrence watched his face. I was conscious, too, of another presence in the room, and I glanced around to see that the maid stood leaning forward in the open doorway, her eyes sparkling with eagerness, her mouth working, her hands clasping and unclasping convulsively. There was something sinister in her dark, expressive face, in her attitude, something almost of exulting, of triumph. Curtis crushed the letter in his hand with a quick movement of despair, and turned to us distraught, flushed, astounded. "'It tells nothing,' he faltered. "'Nothing. It—it—I can't believe it. Read it, Mr. Lester.' And he held the sheet of paper toward me. There were only a few lines upon it. "'Dearest, I cannot be your wife. How shall I tell you? It is quite—quite impossible—' Oh, believe me, sweetheart, nothing but the certainty of that could keep me from you. I am fleeing. I cannot see you, cannot speak to you. There can be no explanation. Only I shall love you always. Is it wrong to write that now, I wonder? Please do not attempt to follow me, to seek me out. That will only mean sorrow for us both, sorrow and shame. Perhaps some day, when the wound heals, will it ever heal? I can tell you, can bear to see you. But, oh, not now. Marcia Lawrence End of chapter 4 End of section 2